Hello, and welcome to Simple Pursuit, the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our prayer that you will grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that you will be blessed and challenged as you listen in. Grab your Bible, because here is today's teaching. If you have your Bible, open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. If this is your first time with us here at Coastal Oaks, boy, did you pick a Sunday to be here in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. All right. It's a great chapter. In 2012, see, that's the Lord agreeing, right? No. In 2012, I took um, a mission trip, uh, one of several that I would take uh, to Germany, and that part of that trip the whole reason of that trip was to go uh, to a city uh, outside of Dusseldorf called Dateln. It's uh, about 30 to 40,000 people. It was one of the last places that um, we bombed before the war was over. So it doesn't have all the pretty uh, architecture of ancient Germany. Uh, it's fairly new because it was, had to be rebuilt. But that's beside the point. Um, but one of the goals we were doing or why we were going was to uh, run a baseball camp. Um, and baseball was the tool or the attraction or the bait, if you will. Uh, the real purpose was to share the gospel as we built our team throughout the week, um, and uh, we would share the gospel each and every day with a team inside of a 30-minute Bible study. And the local church that we partnered with would host services in the evening. Um, so it was a, a great time, but the very first trip I took, um, I met a, who is now a dear friend, um, his name was Stefan, and Stefan was the pastor um, of the church that we partnered with. And we're flying down the Autobahn um, from another, with another pastor uh, from another partner church. We're flying down the Autobahn, going into Dalton, and, and uh, he says, uh, would the three Texas pastors want to go have a beer with me when we reach Dalton? And I was like, uh, I kind of looked behind me, and Jonathan and Tim were with me, the two pastor friends of mine. And we're all in Baptist churches that pretty clearly said, pastors shall not drink. Uh, and so I kind of looked at them and they're like, you know, and I'm like, how are we supposed to handle this? We've got international relations on the line, um, all these things. We're trying to get this partnership going uh, to partner with this church to help them with gospel ministry in their city. Uh, how, um, Stefan, we don't really drink where uh, we come from, is what I told him. And he, I'll never forget his reply, what? <laughs> what do you mean you don't drink beer? This is because you haven't had German beer. <laughs> he totally knew what he was doing, by the way. He knew. He had, he had other pastor friends in Texas. He knew what, uh, what, where we were coming from in our churches and how our churches handled that. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, alcohol is not the issue. Eating meat sacrificed to idols was the issue for the Corinthian church. But there is a principle here that remains true, no matter the issue or the situation, where the Bible is, uh, doesn't give us a whole lot of direction. And that issue is summed up in 1 Corinthians 13. The solution to the issue is summed up in 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul writes to the church in Corinth, love never fails. We'll get there by the end of our time together about 2 o'clock. You'll remember, if you've been with us, you'll remember the Corinthians uh, were having an issue with unity in their church. 
There were lots of divisions, lots of splinter groups, some who had considered themselves super spirituals because they've got all the knowledge, and then there's the lower class of people who don't have a whole lot of uh, knowledge. They're non-spiritual even. And so some of them are divided by who they follow. You had one camp over here saying, I follow Paul, we follow Paul. Another one says, we follow Apollos, who is another minister of the gospel. Uh, You had another group saying, we follow Peter, who was one of Jesus' disciples and also an apostle. And then you had a fourth group saying, we follow Christ, which is the one we should be following. But all of these splinter groups are causing this great division in the church in Corinth, and they're fighting with one another over who's right and who's wrong. And what we find in chapter 8 is yet another one of these moments, one of these issues that's on the sideline, it's a a peripheral issue that becomes a central issue, and Paul's trying to correct that, saying it's not a central issue, Christ is the central issue, this is something that's on the side, and here's how we deal with it. All right, so I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 8, all 13 verses. Fortunately for you, last week we had like 30-something verses. This is just 13. You can make it. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However... Not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak? to eat food offered to idols. And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience, when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Let's pray together. Father God, as we come before your word, it is by your grace that we ask that you would grant us the work of the Spirit to teach us what we do not know, to provide what we need, and to continue to grow us in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray this for your glory and our good. In the name of Jesus, amen. Let me share with you first from the first three verses, love over knowledge. You see, in the church, on these peripheral issues, And lots of other issues, we tend to have two extremes. We'll either go to the camp of legalism or we'll go to the camp of license. So for the Corinthians, it's no different. The historical setting of the church in Corinth is that in Corinth, those who are saved out of uh, sin into Christ were deep into the worship of a multiple God system called paganism. What's what we call it? It's pagan. It's not of God. It's not of the true God. It's pagan. 
They would offer in their types, times of worship and sacrifices, they would offer different parts of animals and sacrifices to their gods. A part of these services were located in and around the temples. There would be butcher shops, uh, what we might consider the supermarkets or the HEBs of the day, and even dining rooms off the temple where you could host a fellowship, a party, a gathering of some kind, and eat meat. Sounds like a good place to hang out, right? Because who doesn't love meat? Well, there's some folks that don't, I guess, but that's okay. Very often, what they would encounter is that that meat used... Uh, it, sold in the shops or sold outside in the marketplaces or even in the temple, was that meat was used in the sacrifice. And it made it virtually impossible for the Corinthian church, the, the Christians there, uh, to eat pure or clean meat that had not been offered as a sacrifice at some point as an act of worship to another God. And that's the issue. It's a very specific cultural issue for the Corinthians. When we go to H-E-B or Walmart or another store to buy meat, we're not thinking, hmm, was this offered to um, Artemis? Was this offered to Zeus? Uh, we're not thinking that. We're thinking, hmm, that looks like it's going to be really good with some dry rub and a long smoke. You know what I'm saying? That's what we're thinking. We're thinking, how long is it going to be before I get to eat this? It's a very specific cultural issue. But for the Corinthians, everywhere they go they were confronted with this issue. A little background research to this, not only was it an issue if the, the animal was sacrificed or the meat was sacrificed, but they're also teaching in that pagan world the notion that demons could inhabit the lives of men and women by what they ate. So here's how it would go. The little demons are out there. They get into the animal. They possess the animal. The animal is sacrificed. The little demon's still in the meat. You eat the meat. Thus, now the demon is inside of you. It's crazy, right? It sounds nuts. But they are worried about also eating little demons. Now, certainly, when we go to H-E-B or Walmart or some other place in town to grab our meat, or we go out to the beautiful Aransas Bay and catch our meat, we're not concerned whether or not there's little demons inside the fish we just ate. So in offering the meat to their gods, right, what is the act of worship about? They're trying to do two things by offering this meat. The pagans are trying to gain favor with their gods, hoping that that sacrifice is acceptable to their gods so they can make it. They're also attempting some decontamination, hoping that the heat from the fire and the sacrifice is going to kick the little demons out of their meat. How are the new Christians of Corinth supposed to respond to this? They know they're coming out of that. How are they, what are they supposed to do? Well, actually, Rome had the same problem or a very similar problem. In Romans chapter 14, Paul wrote about this very similar issue within the Roman church. There he calls them the weak versus the strong. And he calls this issue a disputable matter. There were the weak in Rome who did not know the area of disputable matters or when they were in the area of indisputable matters. Let me draw the difference for you. You heard what Paul said here in uh, 1 Corinthians 8, where he says, For us there is one God, the Father, from whom, whom are all things, and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. So that right there is an indisputable matter for the church. That is not up for argument. It's not up for debate. There is one God. There is one Lord Jesus Christ. There is one Holy Spirit. And they are yet all together in the Trinity, and they are working together. 
That is not a disputable matter. Disputable matters are what we see here. Can I eat the meat that's been sacrificed to another God or not? Because scripture isn't always clear in those areas. Others are eating vegetables, right? They're probably things like pickled beets, yellow squash, and lima beans. But it's causing a division in the church in Rome, and it's causing a division in the church in Corinth. In Rome, they're celebrating some festivals of the Roman Empire. They're celebrating some things that are not in the church. Should we abstain from celebrating those pagan festivals, or should we go along? What if, what if I'm invited to my neighbor's uh, feast that's around the temple? Can I go and, and, and eat the meat that they're offering or, or not? What, what's, what's the line? Where's the line in the sand? And so for the Corinthians, eating meat's the issue offered up in the temple. It's not just the issue. That issue manifests itself in different ways today. Not around meat sacrificed to idols, but in other ways. The principle remains. What are those principles? Well, let's think about the two extremes for a moment. Let's think about legalism. We can drift into legalism. What does that look like? Well, legalism is an approach to Christian living which turns everything into a rules to follow list. It's a creative list of do's and don'ts. And the legalist is going to look at that set of rules to see whether or not they're making a success of their Christian life or not. So for instance, at Coastal Oaks Church, we would have one list of do's and don'ts. You could go to a church across town that's going to have a different list of do's and don'ts. Here you could be making an A. There you could be flunking and failing miserably because their list is different than what you learned here. You could go to a church 100 miles north of here or a church up in San Antonio and there succeed because their list would be similar to ours. Or go out to California and you might find a, a church there that has completely different lists that said, this is legalism. This is all the do's and don'ts. The lists are going to vary from place to place. So in the legalist mind, you come down for breakfast in the morning, not having committed any offenses while you were at sleep and your list of do's and don'ts. You pour your cereal, you get your cup of hot coffee, you're ready to go for the day, and it appears as if you are Mr. Super Spiritual because you have met your list of requirements on your list of do's and don'ts. Never mind that you're a rotten husband, an awful father, and a sorry co-worker. If it's not on the list, it doesn't matter because I'm scoring high on my list of do's and don'ts. But the problem with legalism is that it's going to hurt freedom. It's going to stifle freedom. It's going to create confusion in our conscience. It's going to limit the word of God. And I love what Alistair Beck said about this. He said, really, it diminishes the work of the Holy Spirit. License is the other end of that. Opposite of legalism is freedom. License. Anything goes. Freedom is an absolute conscience. Personal preference. Drive the day and the life. Or better yet, how I feel. My feelings are the final arbiter of in all situations of determining what is right or wrong. The expression of freedom is license. It says that I'm free to do whatever I want, whenever I want, wherever I want, to whomever I want. Because I'm free. I've been forgiven. I'll be forgiven. And so I go forward in my freedom. Yet Paul calls us not to go on sinning. The Bible offers, in this specific instant, neither legalism nor license as a way for us to walk in Christ. 
But scripture does offer a framework for living inside the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. The key here, Paul tells us, is learning to apply these biblical principles to specific issues in life. There are rules in scripture to live by. I call them the big 10, right? The 10 commandments. You can't get around that. We honor God. And really, when Jesus points us to love God with all that we are and love your neighbor as yourself, that's really a summation of those 10 into two. We also have the Sermon on the Mount. Not necessarily a list of rules, but a guide, a a list of interpretation. You've heard it said this, but I say that by Jesus himself. There aren't rules for everything, though, like meat sacrificed to idols. So what then is our guide? Well, we're either going to make it up as we go or we're going to jump in and overindulge ourselves and overdo it. We need help. And for Paul, the help is love. What is happening here in Corinth is you've got these two groups, both thinking they're right, both thinking the other one is wrong, and the one that is wrong is living in sin. And so it's caused this massive division. As Paul pointed out in verse 1, he says, we know that all of us possess knowledge. Now he's writing to those who know what he's about to say. They know that an idol has no real existence and there is no God but one. But there are some in the fellowship that don't know that yet. And the knowledge he's referring to we also find in verse 6. Again, for us there is one God, the Father from whom are all things, for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. That's the knowledge. So according to Paul, the believers in Corinth were free to eat the meat sacrificed to idols. And he said the same thing to the Romans. So it sounds like for the moment, those that have license are going to win the debate. They're going to win the argument. But then Paul pointed out a major difference. And by pointing out this clear distinction and contrast between knowledge and love, that's where Paul is going to draw the line. And here's what he says in verse 1. At the end of verse 1, he says, This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If Paul is holding a microphone, giving this letter verbally, orally, then he's going to drop the mic right there. The knowledge that the stronger believers have led them to pride. It led them to being puffed up based on that knowledge. They're thinking, we're in the know, and these lesser non-spiritual people in the church, they're below us. But the reality is, they really didn't know as much as they thought they knew. They were mature in their knowledge, but infants in how they lived that knowledge out, infants in love. And while knowledge may make you look like a big guy, says J.B. Phillips, it is only love that will help you grow to full maturity in Christ. Friends, there's a big difference in knowing between exercising our rights and freedoms and acting in love. And so Paul pointed out in verse 3 that with the most important knowledge, the knowledge of God always brings humility rather than pride. Now, we read verse 3. He says this, if, but if anyone loves God, boop, stop right there. We might expect 
Paul to have gone on and say, if anyone loves God, he's set. He's made it. He knows all there is to know. This is the person that has full and complete knowledge. He is super spiritual. He's the guy you need to get to know. You want him to be your disciple maker. You want to follow him. But that's not what he says. If anyone loves God, he is known by God. Friends, it isn't about what you know, but by whom you are known. And what are the implications of that knowledge? To be known by God then simply means to be in a trusting relationship with him. You got two youngsters this morning that are going to profess that relationship this morning in the waters of baptism. Here's what John, the, the apostle John wrote to the church in his first letter. See what kind of love the father has given to us. Other translations might say lavished upon us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. There's nothing of ourselves that we bring to the table to make us children of God. It's not because of where we're from or who we are or what our last name is or because mommy and daddy or grandpappy and grandmommy were believers in Christ. That has nothing to do with it. It is God gracing us with this ability and this Uh, invitation to become his child through Jesus Christ. So it's not about what you know, but it is about being known by God through Christ. And in this discussion, Paul offers us four truths or facts to consider as we move down the line. The first one we find is in verse four. He says this, and I've already made mention of it, but an idol has no real existence. Now he's going to build the case for love. An idol has no real existence. An idol is nothing in this world. An idol is nothing at all. Paul knew this. First-hand knowledge he knew this. When he was in Ephesus, as captured in the book of Acts chapter 19, there's a man in Ephesus named Demetrius. Demetrius is a silversmith who made little silver shrines of Artemis, the god of Ephesus. And he made a huge profit off of his work. You small business owners, you have your, your little uh, your, your niche, your, uh, your uh, uh, clientele. You have what you're selling, what you're offering, and you've got customers. And you go, if somebody comes in and uh, tries to undercut you or give something slightly different than what you've got that's more appealing, you're going to lose customers. It causes you to change something. But for Demetrius, he had no other work to do. He made his money off of idol worship. That's all he knew. And... He begins to stir up opposition against Paul because the Apostle Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Paul knew this firsthand, and he's sharing this information with the Corinthians. Maybe Paul has in mind and in his heart what the psalmist sings in Psalm 115, where, he, where uh, he sings, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see, ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. Do you see the difference that's happening here? There's a huge difference. Okay, we've got your idol, uh, your idol smith, your silversmith making the idols. He's going to be and is like his idol. He can't talk. He can't see. He can't smell. There is absolutely zero life in this man named Demetrius. On the other side is Paul. Paul was a sinner. Paul was a guy who was dead in his sin, but his God, through his son Jesus Christ, brought him to life, brought him and made him alive with Christ. 
So you've got the silversmith over here following his gods, making money off of his gods, who is dead in his sin, versus Paul, who is serving and proclaiming the living God through Jesus Christ. Now you tell me, you tell me, which one is on the right side of it? Isaiah chapter 44, Paul perhaps had this in mind. Chapter 44 gives us insight into the ridiculous nature of idolatry. Another time in another sermon. But there would be no issue for Paul eating this meat offered to idols because idols are nothing for Paul. The second fact he gives us we find in verse 4. There is no God but one. There is one God, the Father, and one Lord, Jesus Christ. This comes from the Shema of Deuteronomy chapter 6. The Jews would have repeated this multiple times a day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. They would repeat it often. And then they would follow that by saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength, with all your soul. They would repeat that often. And now he gives, Paul gives a little bit on verse 5 here. Although there may be so-called gods in heaven or or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, one Lord. This is a key moment in this argument for Paul. The father and son are equal in status and yet, and equal in authority, and yet they differ in functions. We see the Trinity at work in this chapter. But the key is this, that everything from the father exists for the father, While all things originated from the Father, they came through the Son, and it is through the Son, Jesus Christ, that we have life. And it is through Christ, the Son, that we come to the Father. We don't get there on our own. We come through Christ. Therefore, we exist for God, and we only do so through Christ, the God of Christianity, the God of the Bible, his name is Yahweh, the I am, overshadows all the other so-called gods or lords, so much so that for Paul, they are insignificant. They should be insignificant for us, too. You can go back to the Old Testament. There's a story where there's a prophet named Elijah and the prophets of Baal. He's Elijah's by himself. There's 450, I believe, prophets of Baal. And all day long, the prophets of Baal, 450 to 1, they're out there hooping and hollering, having a big time trying to get Baal to wake up and light their altar on fire. I mean, they're doing all kinds of stuff. At one point, Elijah says, well, maybe he's uh, out relieving himself. I mean, who knows? He's taking a break. He's doing something. He's obviously not here listening to you. And they go to drastic measures to try to, I mean, drastic measures. And yet in a moment, when Elijah's had enough, he humbles himself and he calls out to the Lord. And God sends the fire and consumes that sacrifice. A sacrifice that had been watered down. It would have been impossible for Elijah to do it any other way other than for God to act. Paul knew this God He knew that the God of Scripture would overshadow any other that would be called God. The third thing Paul gave us fact to consider is that food will not commend us to God. He says that in verse 8 very clearly. Food will not commend us to God. I just copied that straight from Scripture for your point, okay? Seems pretty straightforward. We might say, great, that's easy. Next point, let's move on because you're talking about food. I'm getting hungry, but not so fast. We don't want to get snotty toward the Corinthians, Well, how could they struggle with this? This seems so insignificant, so minor. But we do the same thing, but it's not with food. 
We do things that we have a list of do's and don'ts that we think are going to commend us to God. There are plenty of us here this morning with crazy notions about what brings us closer to the Lord. Things that we do. Maybe we had a great week and we think that great week, oh, it's been so good. Yes, that must be bringing me closer to the Lord. Do you think you're closer to God when you've had a good week versus a bad week? Maybe you performed really well at work and got noticed. Does that bring you closer to the Lord than it did last week? Does it commend you before God? Do you think by coming to church this morning, the act of attending commends you before God because you made the effort in the pouring rain? Do you think you'll ever be more acceptable to God than you are this morning? Maybe more useful to God, but not more acceptable. Friend, there's nothing you or I can do to make ourselves more acceptable to God. There is nothing that commends us to God because food does not commend us. Nothing commends us before God because our acceptance, our commendation is not based on performance. It's not based on our merit, but it is based solely on the work and person of Christ Jesus. That's called grace. These people were terribly confused in their thinking because they're thinking, if I eat the food, am I worse before God? Or if I eat the food, I'm better before God, and they're all just terribly confused? Friends, food doesn't bring us close to God. It doesn't keep you from God. There are lots of do's and don'ts of church people that we think bring us closer to God or keep us from God. We've done this. Anytime we don't keep the main thing, the plain thing, that peripheral issue becomes the central issue in our thinking. And what is supposed to be the central issue becomes the peripheral issue. We just get all kinds of messed up. That's why we got to keep the main thing the main thing. And that's what Paul is doing here by reminding us of the importance that Christ has died for us. The fourth thing that he gives us is that verse 12, when you sin against your brothers, you sin against Christ. Look at verse 12, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. So you know that old Joe that's coming over for dinner tonight has a problem eating meat sacrificed to idols. You don't. It's your house. Therefore, we're going to eat that brisket, baby. It's been smoking for 12 hours. It's got the perfect rub. It don't need no sauce because who needs sauce? Pfft. It's got the, oh, it's going to be great. But you know, Joe's got to struggle with that. You know, Joe has just come out of idolatry. You know, Joe has just come out of worshiping idols and, and, and he doesn't have the knowledge you have. And in doing that and forcing him to eat it, you sin against your brother. And Paul says, therefore, you sin against Christ. The big picture is that our attitudes, our actions have an impact on our brothers and sisters in Christ. Remember last week we looked at spiritual gifts uh, there in chapter 12 and we, we had the image uh, that Paul gives us, the, the illustration of the human body. The ear can't say to the eye, I don't need you. The eye can't say to the nose, I don't need you. We all work together. This is that unity that Paul is trying to build in the Corinthians when it comes to this issue. Paul had firsthand experience of what he's saying here on the road to Damascus. For Paul, he was devout before he knew Christ. Oh, he was religious. He genuinely thought he was doing the right thing for God by arresting all of these so-called Christians who were followers of the way, followers of Jesus. He sought to completely wipe them out, eradicate them totally, because they were bringing down the Jews. And they had a, set a bad precedent 
right? They're following this Jesus guy. I'm going to put to death, Paul was thinking, this goofy notion of Jesus being raised from the dead and those who follow him. And yet then Jesus on that road to Damascus with those letters in his hand to arrest more Christians, Christ Jesus intersected him on that road and said, Paul, why are you persecuting me? He didn't say, why are you persecuting the church? He said, by persecuting the church, you're persecuting me. Friends, it's the same thing. When we hurt a brother or sister in Christ, we hurt Christ. We sin against Christ. That ought to be enough to make us aware of this issue. Everyone is someone Christ Jesus has died for. And we in the church have to treat each other accordingly. We're just not allowed to go wound our brother because they wounded us. It's a matter of principle. There's a couple sitting far apart in the counseling room and the therapist has come in and he notices that they're far apart. In fact, they form a perfect triangle, the three of them. And the husband speaks up and he says, I'm right about this because it's a matter of principle. And the wife spoke up equally firm. I'm right about this and I think it's a matter of principle too. And then countered the therapist, I think we've discovered the problem. The problem is that principle is more important to you than the other person. Maybe we need to expand your strong commitments to principle to include kindness and love to one another. Some people still lack the knowledge, Paul said in the church, the maturity on the knowledge of idols. They're still tied to it. Here's how you make them sin. So they see the idol as, as being real. They haven't grown to that place where they understand it's nothing. And so because they still see it as real, they can't seem to shake loose of the ties with food and the idol. The conscience, their conscience isn't strong enough to eat the food without the chance that they'd slip back or be pulled back into idolatry. They would be like the seed that scattered, that Jesus says, but takes root, but its life is very short because it's choked out by the concerns of the world. Friends, we are believers in different time, in a different place, in a different culture. We don't share the same concern as food offered to idols, but there are some similarities of what we go through today. Ultimately, where we rest is that it is the gospel that transforms us to pursue, to run after the glory of God, to love our neighbor by laying aside our personal freedoms for our brothers and sisters' good. It applies on lots of levels, movies. Some of you have a level of movie that you just will not see. Some of you only go see a movie if it's produced by some, or it's got some kind of Christian story behind it, some kind of gospel story behind it. Others, others of you have no issues going to see other movies. Those things don't affect you. How about the use of alcohol? If you just think that through and you read in scripture, it seems to be a bit of a disputable matter. Worship style in the church is a disputable matter. Song choice, Bible translation choice, so long as it's not one produced by a cult. All kinds of issues that we have seen drawn in the line of sand. The carpet must be green. No, the carpet must be maroon. The paint must be pink. It must be purple. I mean, we can go on down the list of all the do's and don'ts that have been thrown at the church. Some of those may not be an issue for you, but some of your brothers and sisters have come from strict religious backgrounds with what you can do or you can't do that cause them to question or worse, stumble into sin. 
This, this chapter is written to the strong man. It's not written to the weak one saying, would you get your life together and please catch up with the rest of us? No, the responsibility rests with the strong man. And what Paul is saying in verse 9, take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. I'd like to jog uh, multiple times during the week, and you know sometimes I'm not paying attention, and uh, there's a rock in the way. Not a stumbling block, not one big enough for me to stumble, but I step on it, and it's equally as painful. If you've ever been jogging and you have tripped over something, and it hurts for a moment, and it's stumble, you fall, and that's what Paul is saying. Don't let that freedom of yours be a stumbling block to cause someone else to fall back into idolatry, back into false worship. Remember the standard, knowledge puffs up. Great for you, you know it, but love builds up. We are called to edify and build, not rest with our fat head in the church. We have to walk in humility. No list of do's and don'ts. Just remember that Christian freedom works within the framework of loving God first above everything else. And then we walk in Christ in order to love one another well. Thank you for listening today. For more information regarding Coastal Oaks Church, like service times, or what to expect upon your visit, go to our website at coastaloakschurch.org. May God bless you in the journey and the simple pursuit of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord.